Just a couple of weeks ago, toward the end of May, 13-year-old Jordan Romero became the youngest person to scale Mount Everest. He did so on an expedition with his father as part of the team. Not much earlier in May, 16-year-old Jessica Watson became the youngest person to sail around the globe nonstop and unassisted. When asked their opinion on the matter, her father commented on a 60 Minutes report, quote, it would be devastating if we lost her sailing around the globe, but I still think it would be worse to say, no, you can't go because of that risk, because of what she's put into it, end quote. You may have also heard of another 16-year-old not a week or so ago who also attempted to sail around the world by the name of Abby Sunderland. She made it to about the halfway point before being struck by a storm in the Indian Ocean, and she lost her main sailing mass, and she was unable to go on. Subsequently, she was rescued by Australian rescue authorities. Her parents faced much criticism over that trip. Her father responded, quote, We don't live inside of a box. We do things. Some people are accountants. Some people are librarians. Our family is full of adventurers. And I wouldn't want to try to turn them into librarians, end quote. Their 16-year-old son, Zach, completed a solo sailing trip around the world just a year prior. All told, the family spent around $250,000 on both of those sailing trips for their kids. Now, regardless of what you might say about the wisdom of parents who would send their children backpacking up a mountain that has claimed the lives of many older and much more experienced climbers, or the wisdom of sending your children around the world in a tiny little boat to be tossed to and fro just for the sake of a record, the fact of the matter is that the parents of these children, led by their father, judging by the comments, were so effective in supporting and encouraging their children that these children have accomplished much more than so many other children their age have accomplished in their lifetimes. Their parents, their fathers, each of them outspoken, are both verbally and financially supportive. They encouraged their children to accomplish great things, and their children did. They put their money where their mouths were. And even in the face of defeat, at least for Abby Sunderland, they were still encouraging and supportive of their children. Now, these were just a few examples of what's going on in the world, but there are countless studies to indicate the importance of a father in the lives of his children. One writer commented, quote, fathers who routinely engage in play activities with their children help to promote children's intellectual development, social competence, and sense of compassion and empathy. He goes on to say that it's also been found that girls are more confident and do better academically when there's a strong father-daughter relationship, end quote. Conversely, father absence is said to affect some 27 million in our society, and they link it to higher rates of poverty, failure in school, teen pregnancy, substance abuse, violent crime, depression, and ultimately loss of hope. Now, what most of these studies fail to comment on and what is likely just as devastating is the effect of the father who is home but disinterested, the father who is home but lacks affection, gentleness, and compassion, the father who is crass, rude, himself foolish, unspiritual, and who is completely checked out of the lives of his children, leaving the whole of decision-making, disciplining, encouraging, guiding, spiritual vitality, and overall well-being to their moms or else for the kids to figure out for themselves. Even in our congregation, I'm sure there are numerous stories about the importance of fatherhood in the family. Perhaps some of you were like me. 
grew up in a home without a good, strong, godly male role model as a father, and you find yourself in Christ, sometimes before Christ or after Christ, scratching your head to try to figure out what this fathering thing is all about. Perhaps you had a good, godly male role model in your family, but you yourself as a father have made some foolish choices or decisions. And now it makes it difficult for you to stay involved in the lives of your children. Maybe you worked hard at being a father, a good godly male role model. It seems that things have still gone awry for your children. Perhaps they've gone wayward. They're influenced by the winds and waves of society. and You just don't know what to do. You're not sure how you can continue to father them effectively. Well, men, fathers, regardless of your situation, this message is for you. I hope that this morning will be a shot in the arm for some of you, even a wake-up call for others. Don't buy society's lie that fatherhood doesn't matter in the lives of your children. Don't buy the lie that your words aren't being heard by them, that your example isn't seen, that your prayers aren't being heard by our Father. Let this Father's Day be a reminder to you that so long as you breathe air on this side of eternity, your Heavenly Father has commissioned you to father your family. Not just to be a father in name, not just a father biologically, but a spiritual father for the good of your children and the glory of God. Turn your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Thessalonians if you haven't already. So we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 2. looked at Thessalonians together back in February, considering what it means to be an excellent church. Today we're going to look at some principles for spiritual fathering. These principles will be taken from the Apostle Paul himself as he discusses with the Thessalonican church his ministry leadership among them. How did Paul approach ministry among this young, naive, needy, and often persecuted church? How did he act among them? How did he go about preparing them for their lives as fully developed believers and followers of Christ? These are questions that we men have to grapple with. Really, these are questions that all spiritual leaders have to grapple with, but we'll look at it from the perspective of fatherhood. Paul, in fact, uses fatherhood as an illustration of his methodology for serving and leading this church. Really, he touches on the illustration of both mothering and fathering in the text. In other words, spiritual leaders ought to exhibit qualities of both fatherhood and motherhood in their leadership. However, for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the fatherhood principles verses 10 and 10 through 12. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, just to give you the context. Follow with me. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had suffered and been mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speeches, you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, 
how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In the few verses of this passage, 10 through 12, of our focus, Paul's going to give us five principles for spiritual fathering. I'll read them off to you now, and we'll go back through them as we go through the message. Principle number one, a spiritual father is a spiritual example. Principle number two, a spiritual father is a spiritual exhorter. Principle number three, a spiritual father is a spiritual encourager. Principle number four, a spiritual father is a spiritual endorser. And number five, a spiritual father is a spiritual emissary. Now, again, first, a brief note on the background of the book. First Thessalonians was written around 50 or 51 A.D. Paul visited the city during his second missionary journey. The story of their trip to Thessalonica and the surrounding events are found in Acts chapter 17. They encountered persecution at Philippi just before entering Thessalonica and shortly after founding this church also encountered encountered persecution there. Even in our passage, Paul recounts much of this to the believers. After leaving Thessalonica rather, rather abruptly due to the persecution, Paul sent Timothy back to encourage the believers to let them know how Paul and his companions were doing and also to check and see how this church was faring under their persecution that they were encountering now. This letter was Paul's response, his joyous response, hearing that their faith had not been shaken and that, in fact, their faith had been thriving and bearing fruit in the surrounding regions. He was encouraged by this. He was strengthened by this. He says in chapter 1 that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God goes forth. And he was thankful to God for that. These believers had become very dear to the apostle and his companions. He truly loved them as a father. They were his hope, his joy, his crown of exaltation, according to chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, recalls the joy that he had after hearing their steadfast hope in the Lord. He says, now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? The Apostle Paul never had a wife and companion in this life that we know of. Neither did he have any physical children, but he had many spiritual children in the Lord. His love for them was all equally great. Thus, there is much for us to learn as he exposes his heart, his love for the Lord, his love for these people, his habits among them, and also his hope for them. So that they would grow in the Lord as their spiritual father. Let's look at principle number one. Again, a spiritual father is a spiritual example. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. This first principle speaks of their heart. What is in your heart will inevitably come out of your actions before others. These men were clear examples of spiritual living. Their lives were open books before the believers. They exposed their hearts to them as he says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased not only to impart the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you've become so dear to us. Back in our verse, he says, you are witnesses of this and so is God. There was nothing done in the dark. There were no secrets. 
Throughout the course of this text, Paul calls the believers to remember his character while among them. It was clear, it was evident. Chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know that our coming was not in vain. 2, verse 2, as you know, we had the boldness to proclaim the gospel amid opposition. Chapter 2, verse 4, we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Chapter 2, verse 9, you recall our labor and our hardship. Apparently there were some, likely those who were persecuting the Christians who were trying to paint Paul and his companions in an ill light, describing them as cheats after their financial gain and preaching the gospel just for profit. They were likely described as many others in their day would have been who were merely traveling philosophy agents, would go from town to town, city to city, preaching their philosophies just for gain. But the believers would have known better because they'd witnessed firsthand the apostles' character. They'd witnessed their example, their spiritual example, the heart of Paul and his companions. You yourselves know the you is emphatic in that sentence. But stressing, it's almost as if he's saying, you of all people should know. You know how we were among you. You should know, and if that's not enough, God knows. You are witnesses, and so is God, he says. The apostle always lived with an ever-present awareness of God in his life. He always knew that God was watching over him in his ministry and that he'd have to give an account. And in this situation, he was confident that if God were to look at his ministry, if God were to evaluate his ministry and his life before these believers, that God would have stamped his approval on them. Paul lived in the shadow of God's watchful eye. He lived with the knowledge of God's presence and that he needed to give an account of his ministry before God. Let me ask you before we continue, men. Can you do that? Can you say the same thing? In your fathering, if we were to bring each of your children up into the front here one by one and line them up and ask them how you're doing as a spiritual example, what would they say? Could we call them as witnesses to the effect of your example before them in encouraging them to godliness? Perhaps they can see your external example, your external deeds, but what would God say? If he were to open up the book of your heart and bear it before men, what would he say about your spiritual example, about your love for the Lord? Paul was aware of this, and he lived his life in such a way to reflect that he was aware of this. But what was the character of his heart? What was he confident before this group of believers and before God that he consistently exemplified? Well, he uses three adverbs in this text to describe his example, his behavior. I summed it all up as godliness, but he says, again, he says that we were devout, we were upright, and we were blameless. That's how he lived before these believers. These words are pretty closely related. In fact, it's kind of difficult to ascertain the difference between the first two. We know that there is a difference. He mentioned them separately. Some have made the distinction that the first translated devoutly is general holiness with respect to God. It's generally to be set apart for God for his service. The second translated upright is specific regarding to adherence to the moral law of God. But regardless of what the distinction is, both of these words are informed by the latter, which is translated blameless. When Greek lexicon defined this word as deserving no censure, free from fault or defect. In other words, their conduct exhibited blamelessness. Devout, always living in light of God's presence. Upright, adhering to God's moral standard and blameless doing these things without fault or defect. That was the type of conduct that they exemplified before the believers. There was nothing in the way they conducted themselves before the believers that would have brought controversy or caused a charge to come against them. Paul knew it, the Thessalonican believers knew it, and God knew it. 
think a little bit more about why he labors on this point, why he talks about this specifically. It's not a proud thing that he's doing. He talked about it in particular because of the society in which the Thessalonican church lived in. I touched on it already, but it was a godless society, a pagan society, a society in which a few money-hungry agitators were able to easily rally a mob in order to pressure the apostle and his companions to move on. A society of people so hostile towards the truth that not only did they malign Paul and his companions behind his back, but they also followed him to the next city and continued to persecute him there. And so Paul knew that it was important to reaffirm their conduct. But apart from the society in which he lived, Paul knew and understood that spiritual leadership involved more than just spiritual words. Their desire is to produce godly men and women. Men and women who, according to verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul knew that disciples need disciplers who walk the walk as much as they talk the talk. As it was for them, men, so it is for us. We need to be spiritual examples for our children. We need to show them spiritual things are important. We need to show them a life that is aware of the presence of God at all times. A life that appreciates and celebrates a big God. Not a Sunday part-time genie and a bottle God. But a creator God. The Lord, the Holy One, strong and mighty. Awesome in majesty. A life that prays fervently for himself, for his family, for the church, for needs and sickness, with thanksgiving, always. A life that sees scripture as fully sufficient for all matters. A life devoted to the study of scripture, to its memorization and internalization. A life that breathes faith and gratitude toward God for who he is and what he does, no matter what the situation. A life committed to mom and family. A life that sees home as home, not home as a stopping point on a way to work or some other recreation. A life that cherishes his relationship with their mother, providing them a framework and example by which they'll govern all of their relationships from youth on up. A life committed to the church of Jesus Christ. They need to know that it's important to attend service regularly and to gather together with the saints for regular encouragement and edification in our spiritual walk together for Christ. For the sake of building up of the body collectively with our gifts, they need to see that that's important. It's perhaps the greatest example that the Apostle Paul and others like him left for the church is their example of others' centeredness. Being people-focused and not self-focused. A family not committed to service, serving others, serving the church, is a family committed to itself, and itself only, above all others. And that family will pass that self-centeredness along to their children, who in turn will grow up to be self-centered. Our society, as it was for Thessalonica, is anti-God. It seeks complete autonomy. That autonomy is not a reality, period. And we have to live out that fact before the watchful eyes of our children. Godliness must be modeled to children. It cannot merely be taught with words. It's not natural for children to understand or desire the things of the Lord. We make it attractive for them. We make spiritual life natural to them when we show it in our example. Especially for you men. God has so placed men in the life of the family that their example above all other examples are the ones to be modeled. Certainly mom has a place. Certainly teachers have a place, Sunday school or otherwise. Certainly aunts, uncles, pastors, grandparents, cousins, friends of the family, whomever, they all have a place. There's no one like dad in the family, in the heart of the family, 
to provide an example for his children. They see you involved in so many other worldly pursuits to the exclusion and or only occasional inclusion of God, and that's what they're going to think is normal. It won't merely do to tell them that church is important, that God is important, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that that's important. You have to show them. You have to show them that he's important to you. God has commissioned you men to be spiritual examples. I'll give you a quote from Wayne Mack in his book entitled Your Family, God's Way. He says, quote, by giving your children, by giving you children, almighty God has given you the most important, exalted, rewarding, challenging opportunity that you could ever have. He's calling you to help in growing a human being for him. He has commissioned you to labor with him in the building of a life through which he may be glorified and great good may be accomplished for other people. It is a high calling, then, to be a father. And with that high calling comes great responsibility. And that responsibility is your example, first and foremost. If you're going to be anything to your children, men, you have to first be a spiritual example. Let's move on to the next principles. And that first, again, spoke of Paul's heart. These next three speak of Paul's habits. We learn again that a spiritual father is a spiritual exhorter, a spiritual encourager, and a spiritual endorser. Look at verse 11. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Now, the just as you know, again, links back with the previous verse that they're witnesses to the apostle and his companions of their example and character. Transitioning here, Paul is moving from his character to his conduct, specifically his methodology of teaching. He covers first his example because words without example is useless. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge fails to accomplish anything. Biblical theology is not merely concerned with the knowledge as much as it is concerned with what is done with that knowledge. What you do with what you know is more important and sometimes the most important thing above and beyond how much you know. How did he conduct himself while among them? Really to the point of our message this morning, how was his conduct fatherly? Biblical fathers are characterized as the primary influence in their spiritual development of their children. Paul picks up on this with these three participles. He says that we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you. Paul is a spiritual exhorter. That first word for exhorting is, is uh, translated from the Greek word parakalunteis, which should sound somewhat familiar to some of you. We talk about the Holy Spirit as a paraclete, someone who comes alongside for help and assistance. The emphasis could be here in admonishing or exhorting. He used it in the sense of exhorting here. He also uses it in chapter 5, verse 11 of our book, where he encourages the believers to encourage, same word, one another, and build one another up, chapter 5, verse 11. He also tells Timothy to be a spiritual exhorter in his ministry in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, same word, with great patience and instruction. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, also exhorts believers to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls. Now here, Paul's role as a paraclete would have been obvious. He provided instruction in the Lord to these young believers while he was among them, and even continued to provide instruction for them in writing this letter. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction, as you have received instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. And he talks about some of the things that he taught them while he was among them. And he talks about some additional things that they need to do in continuing to excel in their spiritual walk. 
Spiritual fathers are spiritual exhorters. You're to come alongside your children with instruction in order to build them up. And you build them up in the word. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He says, fathers. He doesn't say mother. He doesn't say aunts, uncles, again, cousins, etc. He says fathers. It's primarily the father's role to be that paraclete, to build them up, to bring them up, he says. And there's a concrete picture behind that word, to bring them up. It talks about this idea of nourishing your body. Paul says, nourish your children's souls in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in that verse. Well, the way that the Lord disciplines, in other words, you discipline. The way that the Lord instructs, what the Lord instructs, you instruct. How does the Lord instruct? Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29, 15 through 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. These passages talk really about younger children, but it should be clear that the primary way of correcting those younger children and disciplining those younger children is first with the rod. Furthermore, the emphasis in those passages is placed on the purposes of the rod, which were for removing foolishness from the heart of the child, rescuing their soul from Sheol. The soul that sins is a soul that dies. The rod and reproof give wisdom because he learns that he's not to get his own way. That had nothing to do with abuse or anger or frustration or any other cruel motives. It was controlled. It was consistent. It was consistent correction in some tangible way for the good of the child out of love for them. See the exact opposite in our society, do we not? Society with children who become adults who have no vision, no concept for the law of God, and they can live completely unrestrained lives, doing whatever they want to whomever they want, whenever they want. They have no vision for the moral law of God, no love for their neighbor. My, um, my work the other day, there was a fellow who came in, and uh, I work at a bank. I try to keep this as general as possible. This fellow came in with checks that he'd stolen from his mother, a whole book of checks that he stole from his mother. And he was just writing checks on it, signing it himself, trying to cash it. There's a fellow who had no sense of restraint, no sense of boundary, no sense of love for his neighbor, in particular for his mother and his father. Now, I bet if you were to peer back into his past, look back at his upbringing, you would see a child who didn't get boundaries, didn't have boundaries, wasn't taught to love and respect others. There's wisdom to be found in discipline. That's the point. There's wisdom to be found in reproof. There's character development, a nourishing that happens when parents provide moral boundaries and correction. And as this is consistently applied with younger children as they grow up and develop into older children, preteens and teenagers, and your relationship grows and develop, you can begin to encourage them to respect those boundaries that they've already been taught from the youth up. Either way, you still ought to be characterized by exhorting them and building them up in the Lord. And you do this as you adopt the disciplining habits of God. It starts with the rod. The rod brings wisdom, and that wisdom is fostered by parental instruction. 
instruction in the Lord. Children won't always need the rod, but I always need the wisdom of the word. You remember Proverbs chapter 2, which I read earlier? The wisdom and instruction of the Lord is that which will give them the fear of the Lord. It is that which will guard the paths of justice and preserve their way. It will give them discernment and discretion. It will keep them from paths of wickedness, paths of wicked men and wicked women. Keep them from those paths. There are to be regular periods of biblical instruction. There are to be spontaneous in the course of everyday life biblical instruction. It's up to you dads to know how often and when, but it needs to happen. Building your children confidence in the word of God as the word of God. Teach it with authority. Teach it accurately. Teach it in its context and apply it in appropriate situations. Regularly use scripture and appropriate biblical terminology to convict them of sin. Conviction of sin is wrongdoing leads to repentance. Biblical repentance is necessary for salvation. The standard of right and wrong is the word of God, not a parent's opinion, not our convenience, not our pleasure. It's the word of God. Thus, conviction of right and wrong must begin with the word of God. As we convict using the word of God, the Lord works in the heart of the child and in his timing according to his will. He affects change and brings salvation. I was talking to Hannah the other day about uh, an area in which she struggles occasionally. It was a selfish thing that she did, and I told her as much. It was sin. She already knew it. She chose to disobey. I talked to her about it. She said, I made a decision to disobey. I just didn't want to obey. I just didn't feel like it. I said, okay. Well, what if, uh, what if mommy and daddy decided to just stop feeding you? What if we just decided we just didn't feel like feeding you today? And, you know, she starts uh, sort of whimpering, you know, tears welling up in the eyes. And um, she, she says, you know, that would be wrong. I, I would be hungry. <laughs> I said, okay, that's great. I mean, I understand you would be hungry because you wouldn't be eating. But that's not... It's not really a problem for me. I just don't feel like feeding you today. And she said, that would be wrong. I said, well, why would it be wrong? And she thinks about it for a minute. And, uh, you know, she comes back to again, of course, well, you know, I would be hungry and I would be sad. And I said, okay, that's, that's okay, but that's not why it's wrong. There's a reason why it's wrong. She thinks about it for a little while longer. And she says, it would be unkind. It wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. See, we've talked about that. We've talked about what it means to be kind. We talked about Titus 3 2, show consideration, every consideration for all men. We talked about love is patient, love is kind in the context of biblical instruction. So she knew that. She understood that. And she said, It would be unkind for you not to feed me, Daddy. So I said, Okay, all right, that's right. You're right. That's why it would be wrong. I want you to think about that for a minute. So I left her in the bathroom, went out, you know, took a couple minutes, just let her, let her sit and think about it. And I was, you know, rejoicing in my heart. I was happy. I was like, all right, she gets it now. She got it. I know she's going to make this connection. I'm going to go back in here. She's going to make the connection. You know, she's going to apologize for sinning because she knows she was wrong. And we're going to be good. So I go back in, sit down with her, you know, look her in the eyes. I said, all right, sweetie, so what do you want to say to me now? She says, I want to say to you that I think you should feed me because it would be wrong. (laughs) And it wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord. I said, okay. Okay. We still got a ways to go. And so we talked about it. We talked about it a little bit more. But it's that sort of process, right? You know, you, you instruct them, and then you come back, and then you ask them these diagnostic questions, and then when something happens, 
You start to interact with them and you start to pull those things out. The Lord uses the word in their hearts, even as an unbelieving child. The Lord can use the word in their heart to convict them. And they can be convicted of sin even early on. But you've got to use the word. You've got to instruct them in the way of the Lord. And I was thinking the other day, I've got this little patch of dirt right outside my apartment, right? Got this little patch of dirt. And uh, I, I keep thinking in my mind, that little patch of dirt, we could use that. We could start growing something. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a what, do you, what do you call those people? Who, gardener? I'm not a gardener. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know, okay? I'm just thinking this little patch of dirt we could use, we could grow something. So I start digging in the dirt, you know, and there's this, uh, there's this thistle that's in the dirt or weed or something. just looked ugly. It's not supposed to be there. I didn't want it there, so I start trying to hack at it, right? First time, I just go out and I hack at this thing. And uh, it takes me a while, but I finally get it out. And I uh, toss it away. And I'm excited. Yes, I've done it. You, know, you get a sense, of, uh, a sense of accomplishment, man, you know, when you, you do something like that, right? You've gotten the ugly weed out of the way. And I go away, come back a couple days later, and it's back again. I'm thinking, how in the world did that happen? And so I start digging a little bit more. And I dig a little bit more, and I find this rock. And so this, the root of this thing is, like, wrapped around this rock. And not only is it wrapped around the rock, but it's still going. It just keeps going down, down the side of the walk there. So I just keep digging, and eventually I think I got to it. Um, took me a while, gave me some, some scars and bruises, you know, busted my thumb a couple times, but uh, finally got to it. And I uh, dug it up, haven't seen it back since. So, um, you know, I'm victorious. I'm excited about that. But uh, raising children can be like that, right? It can be like gardening sometimes. You know, you're tempted at first just to dig on the surface, and take care of that ugly thing that's right there on the surface. You just want to get it out of the way because it's an eyesore. That, that surface issue, that, that bad behavior, that incorrect um, action that they're doing, you just want to get rid of it. And so you try to rip it out. And you think, yes, I've done it. They're no longer doing that thing. And then a couple of days later, the same issue comes back. Right? It's because you haven't addressed the heart issue. You haven't addressed what's underneath the surface. You haven't addressed the root, which is sin in their heart. Until you address the root and dig that root of sin out of their heart using the word of God, you won't affect any change in your child. That's what exhortation is all about. That's what disciplining and correcting in the way of the Lord and instructing in the way of the Lord is all about, man. We need to do that. Principle number three, spiritual fathers must be spiritual encouragers. Paul encouraged the believers. In fact, I believe this whole letter was written to them to be an encouragement as they were a young church. They faced tremendous opposition and persecution, were even under attack from those who sought to lead them astray. Paul took the opportunity to write back to them in this letter to encourage their hearts and propel them to look forward in their relationship with the Lord. In the process of coming alongside our children to build them up in the word, to convict them of their sin, we also must give them encouragement. Think about the numerous difficulties that you've had in your spiritual life, your spiritual growth, even after Christ. Think about how often you failed. Think about the tremendous weight and burden of sin that is on your children's hearts, whether they're believers or not, and encourage them, man. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Encouragement is not always shielding your child from every hurt, harm, and danger. Sometimes it's picking them up when they fall. Sometimes it's throwing them right back out there in the thick of it. Sometimes it's just holding them close while they weep through it. Psalm chapter 103, verses 8 through 14 The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Father like the father, man. Recognize the weaknesses and frailties of your children and have compassion on them. Encourage them. When they fail, which they will fail, be careful with your words. Choose them wisely. Fathers who are not careful with their words to encourage and not constantly tear down are fathers who will miss out on fruitful relationship with their children in the long run. When children feel encouraged, trust begins and trust grows and it develops. And as they get older, that trust is strengthened and they'll come to you for anything. And they'll trust in you. They'll trust your words because they know that you're for them and you love them. And you won't always turn, and turn, turn away and you won't always scold them when they, when they fail, when they mess up. They need that encouragement. Dads, be good listeners. It's kind of hard for us, right? We men can sniff out the solution to a problem like a bloodhound, can't we? We see the solution, we point it out, we solve it, and we move on. That's what we do. We fix things. But children, especially little girls, don't always need to have things fixed. Sometimes they just want you to listen. And that listening helps to foster that relationship. It helps to build that trust and that love that you will need in the long run in your relationship with them. Again, that idea that children are like, like this garden, like this, uh, like this plant, is seen in Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. As we fear the Lord and we honor the Lord and we instruct and encourage our children, men, we nourish them, we feed them, we water them, we care for them, we speak kindly to them. Our children grow up and bear great fruit for the Lord. Spiritual fathers have mastered the art of spiritual encouragement. Principle number four, spiritual father is a spiritual endorser. What do I mean by that? Well, that's the last word in verse 11. He says that they were imploring each one of them. This is a Greek word, martu romanoi. Martu Romanoi. In that, you probably heard the word, word martureo. It's a basic word there. We get our Greek word martyr from that. A martyr is a witness, one who testifies and affirms firsthand the authenticity of a thing. If you are a Christian and you're a father, then you can attest firsthand without having any seminary or Bible college training that Jesus saves. You can testify to the grace of God that it's truly amazing. You can testify to the goodness of God in providing daily for your family. You can testify that there's benefit in righteous and holy living and that there's foolishness and wickedness and sin. Listen, men, fathers, some of you I probably don't have to say this to, but you have to master and learn the importance of the phrase, when I was your age. Sometimes we kind of hate to say that. Sometimes we kind of hate to hear that. You kind of feel old when you start saying that. But sometimes it's important for you to say that, especially for dads. Dads can be like Superman to their kids. They can be like Clark Kent walking around in the midst of bullets, showering everybody else and hurting everyone else, but just bouncing off of him. Nothing seems to hurt dad. Nothing affects him. Your kids need to know that kryptonite exists. They need to know that they're not alone in their struggle. They need to know that there is no temptation that has overtaken them except that which is common to man and that which the Lord will provide a way out of. 1 Corinthians 10.13 that you've struggled and experienced the grace of God and finding your way out of so many trials and struggles, 
They need to know and hear in a way that is appropriate for their age and situations that you can relate. That their peers are not wiser than you merely because they share present experience with your children. Your children need to hear the wisdom of your experience and they need to benefit from the comfort and faith that the Lord has given you in the midst of trials and struggle. Perhaps you don't have any great awe-inspiring stories from your past. Read the Old Testament. Familiarize yourself with the stories of saints of old who have lived, bled, and died in the faith. Saturate your children with the knowledge that God's way works. Read up on missionaries and other godly biographies of saints. Affirm to them with your heart that God's way is the only way. Spiritual children and spiritual fathers who have placed their seal of approval on the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, in this passage, we've seen Paul's heart. He's revealed his character to believers and to us. We learn that a spiritual father is a spiritual example first and foremost. He ever lives aware of God's presence and is ever aware of the importance of his faith as an example to his children. We've seen Paul's habits. He reveals to us conduct becoming a spiritual father. A spiritual father is a spiritual exhorter, carefully wielding the word of God to convict and build up his children. A spiritual father is a spiritual encourager, strengthening the heart of his children through comfort and tenderness, even in light of failure and distress. A spiritual father is a spiritual endorser. He's placed his seal of approval on the Christian faith, even in what it means to walk by faith. And by his words, he affirms the benefits and blessings of the same. And finally, we see Paul's hope. This is his great concern for the church, for his spiritual children. And we're instructed as to what should be the end of all of our dealings with our children. Principle number five, a spiritual father is a spiritual emissary. Again, back to our verses. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is Paul's hope. This is his main concern, that they would walk worthy of the God who has called them. Listen to the prayers he offers up on their behalf in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may the God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. A major theme in this letter, something that Paul often reminds the church of throughout the course of this letter, is the return of Christ. He is returning. He's returning to judge. So all men need to be ready, especially those in the church. And particularly, he prays that the church will be established unblameably in holiness. Chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And he prays that God would entirely sanctify and preserve them completely without blame until the coming of the Lord. This was his prayer. This was his hope. This was his concern for his spiritual children. Be like God. Be like Christ. Walk in a manner worthy. Be ready for his coming. To this end, Paul labored and strived for his children. He even spoke of how he and his companions worked night and day so as not to be a burden to them financially. Men, you too, your ultimate goal in fathering ought to be to produce children who walk in the way of the Lord. Children who walk in a manner worthy of God, Christ, and his kingdom. This world is not about you. It's not about your kingdom. It's not about your children building their kingdom. It's about God, Christ, and the kingdom of Christ. It's about the Lord. It's about him. And we need to prepare our children 
to be ready to live in God's world, to face the judgment of God and of Christ who is soon returning. You work hard at your jobs, men, in order to further your career, in order to provide for your children. And sometimes in the course of your pursuit to provide for your children, the job stops serving your family and your family begins serving the job. Everything in the family takes second place to your job. That is a grave error, men. Jesus said, what is a profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What do you really give your children if they're born, receive all the best education, receive all the best opportunities, gain a good reputation with men, have a successful career at your prompting, travel around the world, achieve great strengths of thank, uh, hmm, achieve great feats of strength, humanly speaking, and yet die in their sin and face the judgment of God? What have you given them? This life is about God and it's about Christ. And you need to teach your children that. If you love your children, then you must be an emissary of Christ, an ambassador of Christ to them. If they learn nothing else, they must learn from you that they need Christ. Christ is not just for women. Churches nowadays are packed with women who bring their children along without dad because dad's sitting home watching the game. Christ is not just for old age. After you've had your fun, then you come back grudgingly to the church to sit and soak or be entertained. There's no real life without Christ. So if you don't give them Christ, you've given them nothing. Paul said of his ministry to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though we were entreating, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Through you, men, God is entreating your children to be reconciled to himself. Plead with your children on behalf of Christ. Weep on behalf of your children over their lack of Christ-likeness. Labor on behalf of them to bring them the gospel, to bring them to the God of all grace, to the God who became sin for us, that we through him might become the righteousness of God. Be a spiritual emissary for your children. Let me give you just a few more words on fathering been talking this morning to the men this Father's Day after all but for some days like Father's Day bring to mind a vivid and harsh reality of being without a father in the home or being estranged from your father for some reason single moms take advantage of the church in helping to raise your children don't sit at home fretting over the fact that you're without a husband that your, your children don't have a, hus- a father in the home God has not made a mistake with you he's not forgotten you He has given you great resources in the church and the line of godly spiritual men, godly spiritual leadership for which your children can pattern their lives after. Take advantage of this. Look for men who exemplify these principles. Bring your children alongside those men. Allow them to be encouraged and strengthened. You can't do it alone. Don't try to. There are some of you without children altogether. For you, men especially, I'll say that you're still not exempt from applying these principles in your life. As I mentioned, for Paul, he had no physical children, but he had many spiritual children in the Lord. And even today, his words speak to our hearts. Be a spiritual father to someone. Take someone under your wing. Encourage them. Exhort them. Strengthen them in the Lord. Be an example for them to the glory of God. Um, A writer by the name of Dave Barry in a recent satire on the nature of fatherhood likened fathers to dandelions. He claimed that men are mere products of and subservient to their DNA, which suggests that men must spread their seed as far and wide as possible without thought to where it lands, for the mere sake of furthering their DNA in the world. Is that fatherhood to you? 
Are you that kind of father? Or will you accept the challenge to be more than a DNA donor? Perhaps you've lived that kind of life. Perhaps you realize now that there's so much more to fathering than you conceived of and you want to do more. Perhaps you know you've made some mistakes and you wonder if you can ever make it up again. Allow Psalm 103 again to saturate your heart. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. We serve a gracious and compassionate heavenly father, men. Learn yourself first to fear him. Come to him in humility. Let him wash your sins away. Allow him to cleanse your weary, sin-laden hearts with the blood of his perfect son, Jesus. Let him remove your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Receive his compassion. Receive his grace. Receive his love. Allow him to effect change in your family first through you. Be a spiritual father. You can start today. Be an example. Be an exhorter. Be an encourager. Be an endorser. Be an emissary for your children. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the men, for the fathers today, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of your strength and might, which you brought about in raising Christ from the dead. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have that same heart for our children that we've talked about this morning, to be spiritual examples, to be encouragers, exhorters, to be emissaries, to be endorsers of the faith. Father, forgive us in areas in which we struggled, in which we failed. Encourage our hearts, Lord, and remind us of your compassion and your love and your grace today and always. For your glory we pray. In Christ's name.